is having a season of really preparing for, um, Cheryl has used the language of the mystery of Easter, because there is um, a lot about the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can understand, but there's also a lot of it um, that is difficult to understand, and there, there is a lot of it which sort of has to be experienced, actually. Um, that has been, I would suggest, um, the most powerful witness of the church when it comes to what God has done for us. That for millennia now, people can say, I have decided to give my life in Jew from the first century, and I experience freedom. I experience this forgiveness of sin that people talk about. I'm not sure entirely how it works, but something in me has changed because of this man and my new commitment to him, understanding what he has done for me. Um, And traditionally, Christians have kind of, Sharon's used this language again, taken uh, a whole sort of chunk of their year to kind of prepare to enter this mystery. And some of it was about the fact that um, in many traditional churches, as we're going to do this year, quite understandably, um, a whole heap of people would get baptised on Resurrection Sunday because it's just such a powerful symbol, right? The new life that comes with the resurrection of Jesus. We're celebrating that on a particular day. Why not also celebrate the new life that comes to us um, and, and, and symbolically how we pass through those waters of death in baptism to new life. So there were some kind of practical reasons why people were taking some time out to go, am I kind of ready to do this? Do I get what I'm doing? Is my life in a sort of state that is reflective of the commitment I'm about to make? Is my life in a state that's reflective of what it is that we celebrate together? And we've talked in the staff room a little bit uh, about the way that many Christians call this season Lent. Um, And for some of us, uh, that's maybe not normal. (laughs) That kind of sounds like Catholic-y language. And we sort of said, well, do we just talk about preparing uh, for Easter rather than use the word Lent? And we decided, no, we'll use it. Um, There's sort of a, a pattern in human history of building things up and then breaking them down because when they get built up, uh, you realise there's some problems with that. Uh, it's a bit like jeans, fashion with jeans. They go skinny, they go wide, they go skinny, they go wide. All the uh, guys with chunky legs realise skinny jeans aren't really probably the best choice for me. I'm going to go wide. Uh, <laughs> we've maybe um, associated some stuff with the language of Lent, maybe associated some stuff with the lang- with with Catholicism generally that we've been a bit uncomfortable with. But who knows that you can reclaim things too. Um, You can reclaim skinny jeans if you've got chunky legs. Maybe. No, but you know, we really believe that in this moment of history there's a good reason to look to some of these ancient practices uh, to inform our discipleship, to give our discipleship shape. So if Lent is a bit of a trigger for you, again, it's one of those things come have a chat to us about it. It's partly just a shorthand for this time that we're taking out to make sure that when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, we do it well, we do it as fully as possible. 
Um, and part of that journey, we're going to be encouraging you to think about some practices that can help you to make this season real, that can help you to get the most benefit out of this. And um, so we thought we'd just talk to some people along the way who have done this uh, already. Sharon and I have been doing it for a few years, but you're probably sick of hearing from us, so we thought we'd talk to some other people. And some people who've been on a journey with this for a while are the wonderful Kempsters. So could I get Dan and, and Alice out? I'm going to give them a microphone each just because I can. Um, So Alice, Daniel, uh, for those of you who don't know these guys. And one of the things that uh, I've really appreciated about the Kempsters as we've gotten to know them over a few years is they are intentional people. So the culture of their family life, they make a real effort to sort of think about what their faith looks like as a family unit. And as a part of that, you guys, how long ago did you kind of begin to experiment with with having specific practices for this season leading up to Easter? I think we started with Holy Week. So it was like a slow introduction. It was about five years ago now. Mm-hmm. Having Holy Week and having a Passover meal. So that was kind of, you know, we're trying to make it a bit real for the children, really. So yep. Yeah, it sort of started like that and then it kind of progressed as we went on. Yep. So, yeah. Because you can sort of have that moment where you're like, we have all this build-up in the culture already for Christmas... And then there's this equally, if not yeah. more significant thing that we celebrate at Easter that can just kind of slide That's by right, with yeah. a f- few chocolate of, bars. You know, you can kind of be a little bit, I don't know, kitsch, I suppose, with like Easter eggs and, you know, bunnies and things like that. So we wanted it, we want to bring meaning for our kids in a way that they can carry it on into the adult lives. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what we're having kids for. Cool. So <laughs> um, we want to create, create really great adults. So it's sort of, it's about the heart behind it. Yep. The exercise is a great outworking of the heart. So it's a vehicle, right? Yeah, 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 it's really important. Yeah, that's great, Alice. So I, I sort of primed you that I would ask you, what are some of the practices that you've brought to this season? And then um, the second question was, what sort of difference has that made? Uh, has it sort of helped you at all as you've prepared yourself for Easter? Okay, so I've, I've chatted with Josh a bit about this to you know, in the years gone by that, you know, the, the great outcomes that we've had. But I think the... So for us, we don't do the same thing every year. I guess that's the first thing, is that we um, we take it from the point of view where... Um, last year was a bit tough. <laughs> it was a bit it was a bit harder last year. <laughs> uh, but we take it from the point of view, like Matthew 6, like your um, the, the treasure is where your heart is. So, you know, that helps us kind of decide what we're going to do for Lent and usually it's something that the Holy Spirit puts within me more than anything as the leader but um, <laughs> but it's something that our family that we can see our family it's an area that gets in the way of us and God right and so um, I think the first time we did it as a family it was TV because TV was taking up too much of our time it was you know making us less connected so we um, we eliminated TV for 40 days and as great as that is just to, to say we're going to do that. There had to be more to it. There had to be more about our hearts and not just giving up something. So it's not a religious thing. Um, it's not just a traditional thing. It's actually something that's happening within us. So we've said, like, okay, well, we're going to use the 
the time that we would spend on TV. And we're going to pray together or we'll do a devotional together. And it was, um, it was real, I think that part of it, the fact that we had given up something for God, but we were also giving to God. And then in return, of course, God was giving to us. Mm-hmm. So I think that sort of, you know, we, we did TV one year last year, what Daniel was quite upset about. We, we did no fancy foods, very technical term. <laughs> It's a biblical term, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. Deuteronomy somewhere. But it was like we we were looking at the way that we eat and the way we consume and it was sort of like, well, we don't even think about sometimes the food that we're putting into our bodies and we're not thinking about how we enjoy the taste of it. Like, oh, I don't want to eat that because it doesn't taste good. It's like, well, this is amazing food that God has given us. He's blessed us with this, this resource, this abundance and we weren't even sort of, we weren't, aware of it I Mm. suppose so it's sort of taking that step back to be aware of what God has given us Mm -hmm. I really like the language that you used and it's language that we're going to use it's not just about putting stuff down or laying Mm. stuff down it's actually about taking things up as Mm. well creating space or there's a real circle to it I think it's not just a it's not just a tradition or a religious thing that you do it's actually the intention is the heart behind it and it's putting God back into that first place like I think there was a correlation between like the Isaac you know when Abraham had to give up his Isaac his thing that was the thing that was getting and and God asked him to make that sacrifice and then you know and then out of that the great blessing came and it was because he put that down and so we've got like we've all got Isaacs in our life and they change throughout the years so for us we're sort of like we want to address those Isaacs those potential sort yeah. of idols. Yeah. yeah, that's great, Alice. And Daniel, just um, so, yeah, so you say something. C- can, you, can you think of ways that it has sort of helped prepare you um, for Easter or even just benefits along the way? I think, um, I think everyone's got a different start point, I guess. Um, people view things uh, very differently. Uh, one thing works for one person, uh, one thing uh, works for another I'm kind of a bit of a practical person and uh, and that's and I guess uh, doing uh, something practical in this sort of uh, front by sort of you know, uh, strategically giving something up at a point sort of in the year is a real deliberate decision that you've got to make and a commitment too that you've got to make um, and I think that just um, really brings back to that point uh, Alice was saying just about the real blessings sort of that we have because sometimes we can just take things uh, for granted and that sort of thing and do things without even thinking um, so I think it's that real step back, I, I guess, and uh, uh, real time for, I guess, uh, uh, appreciation, you know, mm-hmm. for the uh, things God has uh, given us. And Alice, what Alice was saying as well is about making idols in your life, and, uh, and certain things can become idols, and, you know, it, it can creep up on you before you know, but I think by putting, again, putting that sort of time aside, making that real strategic decision uh, can really make you see these things as you uh, progress through. Mm-hmm. But that's me. So, yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, that's, it's really good. that's on the money, Dan. Sometimes we think about this season as a wilderness season. Uh, Cheryl yeah. thinks she's in the cake wilderness at the moment <laughs> in our home. She's like, I've got nothing to look forward to at the moment. Life just feels so dry and empty. Yeah. But there's a reason why throughout yeah. history, when people have wanted to connect with God, they go into those wilderness well, it's, it's places. It's 40 days because, you know, Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. Like, what was he doing there? He wasn't just hanging out. Don't steal my sermon, no. <laughs> 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 you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why, like, I don't know, like, logically it all makes sense. And 
So we don't have to like, follow it to the T and do the way that you know, certain people say. But like, it, there's real value there's in it. It's like you know, there. there's the, the yep. kingdom, like those true, those truths yep. that just exist. Great. Hey, thank you guys. I'm sure these guys would love to, to chat with you about their experience um, if you wanted to ask them some questions. Um, so, the, the, let's just, Alice really did a segue for me there. Uh, the, the message that I'm preaching today, uh, I'm calling Preparing to Journey the Way of the Cross. And that's how I'd like you to think about everything that kind of flows out of this message, is that this is really about discipleship. It's about following Jesus. Um, And this time of year reminds us that the kind of penultimate um, moment before uh, the... when God uh, comes again and restores peace of Jesus' life was the cross... Um, so to be a, a disciple of Jesus, as difficult as it might be to get our heads around at times, is to be someone who f- walks the way of the cross, who journeys the way of the cross. And we're going to look at the fourth chapter of Luke and the first 14 verses of it. It says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So he'd just been baptized by John the Baptist there and was led by the spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry so the devil said to him if you are the son of god tell this stone to become bread if you are the son of god tell this stone to become bread jesus answered it is written that man does not live on bread alone the devil led him up to a high place And showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to them, I will give you all authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, there's that phrase again, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until the opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. So, perhaps a familiar story uh, to us, and it's a story that's sometimes talked about uh, in terms of the temptation of Christ. Uh, But we could also variously refer to it as the testing of Christ. It says in verse 2 where for 40 days he was pirazzo, um, tested, or tempted, it's the same in the Greek, you can see, to make proof of, to attempt, to test, uh, to attempt, to test, and to tempt. And testing uh, is essentially this, a procedure intended to establish the quality, performance, or reliability of something, especially before it is taken into 
widespread use. Preparation for something, something important, necessitates testing. Preparation for an important function. Uh, if we're talking about uh, uh, an aircraft that is uh, carrying the lives of dozens of people uh, and, and their safety, um, you would hope, unlike a Boeing 323, uh, that it had been tested very thoroughly before you went into it. When we buy motor cars, we rely on the fact that the companies that have produced these metal boxes that will have us flying along hard surfaces at 100 kilometres an hour have been well tested. The important function that these things are going to perform for us necessitates testing. Anything important in life necessitates testing. I was just talking um, to someone who's training as a nurse just now. I'm really grateful that they are well tested on the journey before they have the life of someone in their hands. Um, a particular event that is important, if we're putting on a concert, you want to make sure that the lights work, that the, sounds work, that the sound system works, that everything that you're going to rely on to have that important event carry through without any glitches. Uh, you, you need to test the dimensions of it to get it there. And in this story that we read, we encounter a, uh, a situation where the devil is testing, and I pointed this phrase out to you as we read, whether Jesus is the true Son of God. He says three times there with the three temptations, if you are the Son of God, do this. And the Son of God, uh, we understand from reading the scripture, is the one who will fulfill the promises to Israel, is the true Israel, as it were. Um, before the Son of God was a title for Jesus, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it was actually a title for Israel. There's many examples in the Old Testament, but here is one from Hosea, and this is God speaking through Hosea. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, God's son, Israel. But if you've read the story of Israel, you'll know uh, that he was not... They were not an ideal son uh, at many points in time. Hosea 11 goes on, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burnt incense to images. And so um, what Satan is doing in a sense is he is testing to see whether this son is an unfaithful son as Israel was. Just to do a little bit of background to get this, we've talked in the Exile series about how John the Baptist was out at the Jordan and was tapping into this sense that the Jews in Israel, whilst they were in the promised land, sort of felt like they were exiles still. 
So they had this period of exile back, uh, you know, several centuries ago in Babylon. Here they were back in the Promised Land, but they had uh, a foreign empire oppressing them. There was religious corruption. There was all sorts of problems, and there was this sense in which, though they were home, they were not really home. Though they were Israel, they were not really Israel. And so John the Baptist goes out and he says, if you want to really be home, if you want to really be who it is that God has called you to be, if you want to truly be Israel, come and go through those waters of the Exodus again, passing through, have your sins forgiven and enter in to what God would call your true destiny to be. And that had such resonance that it says in the Gospels that the whole of the area would go out and receive John's baptism to become the new Israel. And interestingly, John is pointing not so much to the Babylonian exile, but he's pointing to that exile from Genesis 3, where he says, actually, your real problem is not so much that you're not in the land that God had promised you. It's that there is sin that alienates you from God. Because as good as it is to be on a patch of dirt that God has given you, it doesn't mean much if you're not in communion and fellowship and in a love relationship with the one who has given it to you. If you're not living on it in line with his purpose. And we see Jesus step into that moment and say, I identify with that. And in fact, as he goes through those waters, some kind of woo-woo, supernatural kind of stuff happens that makes it seem like, whoa, those other baptisms that John performed were significant, but this one, we hear the voice of God saying, this is my son, right, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, like the Hebrews fleeing Egypt, adopting this new identity that God confers on them of being the chosen people, a nation called Israel. Jesus going through those waters and being confirmed as the true son of God. And then what happens on the other side of those waters for Israel? 40 years in the wilderness. There was an important destiny ahead of them that necessitated some testing right? Before you can get in that car, before you can receive the promised land, you have to be ready to drive that car. You have to be a people who can live out the promise that comes with the land. And that is to be a blessing to all the nations. And so here we see Jesus standing right in the pathway of this story. And so what happens here with Satan's involvement is a kind of test of the nature of the Son of God. Israel, they pass through the waters uh, of cleansing to new life. Tick. Jesus, he also does it. But Israel, tested in the wilderness, yet remaining faithful to Yahweh, no, even at that very moment where Moses receives the law, receives uh, the blueprint for what is going to make them the people who can carry out God's purpose, he finds them worshipping an idol. Jesus, tested in the wilderness, remaining faithful 
to Yahweh. Well, that's the very story that we've read. He comes through these tests and temptations and affirms in doing so that he is the true son of God. Jesus is the true and worthy son of God, worthy to occupy this place of divine sonship, as it were. To be the son of God, that's a big deal. To be reflective of who God is, that's a big deal. Jesus can do it as his son. But something else that's going on in this story, and I'm going to get through it in three quick points for us, is that Jesus is also, I think, grappling with his humanity in this situation. And maybe that's why this story can resonate with us. It's one of those stories that we point to when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, that he was tempted. Remember, preparation for an important task necessitates testing. And Jesus himself, in this moment, we can imagine, is caught up considering the task that lays ahead of him. Can he be that true Israel? Perhaps understanding the cost at which it will come, perhaps anticipating the cross that lies before him. Can he walk this way of the cross? There are um, certain practices, and Alice and Daniel have, have given us a bit of a taster there, that we associate um, with this season that we call Lent, which is really modelled on this 40 days. It's um, a way of following Jesus in his temptation, in his testing for the task that he was preparing for. Um, Preparing uh, for the cost of following Jesus. As we anticipate Easter again, as we anticipate being uh, made as aware as we might be all year of the death of Christ. Will we be able to get to that point and pass beyond it? Or will we have to, as Sharon talked about last week, just walk right past the mystery? Can this Resurrection Sunday and this Good Friday be truly formative for us? Can we allow God to do something new in us? Can we be changed, actually, in the process of it? Well, I want to suggest that we can if we model the process of this time leading up till Easter uh, on Jesus here. And he does three things as he prepares to journey the way of the cross. He's prepared to sacrifice his physical appetites. He's prepared to give away his worldly power. And he is prepared to lay down his personal ambition. we're going to be disciples of Jesus we need to be prepared to be tested verse um, 3 of the chapter the devil said to him if you are the son of God tell this stone to become bread Jesus answered it is written man shall not live on bread alone what we see Jesus do here to navigate this testing is go to scripture 
first of all, right? So interestingly, a Bible geek moment, all of the passages that Jesus refers to in this section are from a particular two or three chapters of Deuteronomy, which are the laws that deal with coming out of Exodus in the Promised Land, remembering, and I've got it right here, but I won't read it for the sake of time, not to forget the Lord. Um, so Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you or your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So God's saying, this is something that I did for you in the desert, so that you would realize that you have to rely on me. And if you go on in that chapter, just to zip through it a little bit, um, what God actually says is the reason that I did that is I know once you get to the promised land, you have good crops, you build nice houses, you're well fed, you're dressed well, there's a very good chance that you'll forget about me. That, (laughs) sadly, is human nature. Because um, it's just a fact that physical appetites can become as a God to us. If a God is that which we worship, as physical beings, we're sort of wired in some senses to worship the things that keep us alive, to worship the things that keep us um, feeling good. But what Jesus is doing here in echoing Moses, in echoing Deuteronomy, is saying that temporal gods are only ever giving temporary satisfaction. And what we find when we feed what John calls the lusts of the flesh is that we're satisfied for a while, but then we need the next meal. Then we need the next sexual interaction. Then we need the next piece of clothing to keep us happy. Temporal gods only ever bring temporary satisfaction. And God offers his people eternal satisfaction. He offers his people uh, something which moth and rust cannot attack. He offers his people eternal life, eternal reward, life abundant. And one of the benefits of fasting as a practice, and Alice and Daniel put us in touch with this, is it's a way of getting ourselves in touch with the fact that we might often be worshipping our own appetites. Someone once said to me, I tried it once, um, but I just couldn't do it, so I've stopped doing it. And I was kind of thinking, that's kind of the point, right? To be sure, there's grace in giving up cake for 40 uh, days, uh, maybe grace for your waistline, grace as you, as you climb on the scales, uh, grace as you kind of um, maybe turn your thoughts towards God because of those things. But there's also grace if you fail, right? There's also grace getting four days into Lent and sneaking a bit of chocolate cake and then realising, this is kind of a commitment I made to God and here I am living out the fact that my appetites just have such control of me. If we are to follow Jesus on the way of the cross to be prepared 
for the journey to the cross. We need to be prepared to sacrifice physical appetites. And that might not be easy. It might not always work, but we need to be prepared to do it. Because if we're not testing ourselves, there will come a time of testing. And wouldn't it be a pity if you fell off the journey following Jesus to the cross, to your destiny, to a place where he can use you for his kingdom because lunch was just a little too good. And it might not be in the days leading up to Easter, but it might be sometime in your life. You don't realise just what a God your appetites are to you. And you get to the end of your life and realise you wasted it on temporary pleasures rather than something that would truly last. The second thing that Jesus shows us in this passage is to walk the way to the cross, to be prepared for that journey to the cross. We need to be prepared to give away worldly power. Verse 5 says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus responded, Worship the Lord God and serve him only. There is a temptation in this life to have things for ourselves and thereby to worship ourselves. Jesus, as the King of kings and the Prince of peace, knew that by grasping worldly power, he could never bring about God's reign of peace in the world. And the temptation is, and I would suggest um, in some ways that's what we've seen tragically this week someone grasping the power at hand that doesn't serve the peace of God but actually causes death and division and destruction these kinds of actions will never bring about peace they will never bring about the peace of God and so Jesus can say I don't want that kind of power my power comes another way the practice of giving away something that we've worked hard for, something that we've strived for, for the sake of shalom, for God's peace, can show us what we are actually attributing worth to. So uh, one of the other practices that's often associated with this time of year is arms, so giving away an extra amount of what you've got. That hurts, right? Many of us have pretty finely tuned budgets. We know what we give away week by week, and then to just give a big chunk to someone else it puts you in tune with where your heart's really at if it's difficult to do that if it's difficult to give away something that is really God's actually I wonder what it says to us about whether we really actually were ever true in our hearts about whether that stuff belonged to God in the first place Perhaps we want it for ourselves. And I'm sure there's many testimonies in this room of what it looks like for God to be faithful to us when we give um, extravagantly like that. And finally, to prepare for the journey to the cross, we need to be prepared to lay down our personal ambitions. Verse 9 says, The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, 
it is said, do not put your Lord God to the test. There's all sorts of ways that we might have personal ambition. There's something particular about this temptation for Jesus that I think speaks to us as people of faith, as religious people. Um, And that is that we can spiritualize our personal agendas, actually. We can kind of point to God as a reason for doing what we really want to do in our hearts. And um, in John, this sin is called the pride of life, First John. It's about ego, really. This is what the Pharisees did. They pointed to God all the time when really their hearts were a long way from him and their religiousness was actually an impulse to feed their own sense of self-worth, to show them that they were better than other people internally. Any kind of spiritual pride, any kind of Pharisaism is this pride of life for religious people. And as religious people, as Christian people, we have to be so wary of it. Jesus says, do not test God. And he quotes again Deuteronomy there. And what testing God means in this instance is using God for our agenda rather than making ourselves available to his. God becomes instrumental to what we want to do. He's convenient to kind of dress up our selfish desires, our insecurities, our fears. I'm going to um, finish here because we're uh, going to take communion this morning. But I'll finish on this note that if we're going to live the way of the cross, we need to be prepared to live the way of the cross. And I just want to encourage you, I might get the band up. Uh, Actually, we're not going to do that. Um, We're not going to do that because I want the band to take communion with us. I just want to encourage you, if you haven't considered maybe trying to take this journey in some intentional way, think about it in these terms. Am I preparing myself in a special way? Because you need to do that, the rhythms of life. You need to make a special effort sometimes to live the way of the cross. Here's that word, um, test, again, from Second Peter. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from testing and temptation. We can be assured, as difficult as testing might be, um, as strong as temptations might be, if we cordon off a part of our life to try and, and sort of offer it to the Lord in a new way that he will be faithful because in fact Jesus has done it all before us and for us right the the human struggle of what Jesus went through it redeems our human struggle we receive in God's eyes his nature his perfection he blesses us with if we have faith in him if we follow in his way. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website at www.homecommunityworld.com.au Cornerstone meets at 81 Meter Parade, Alderney.